Well, this morning, it's uh, January 8th, and so if you have been with us over the last few months, you know that over the fall, we were studying the book of 1 Thessalonians, and so we got through chapter 4, then we hit pause to do Advent together. We did uh, a really, I thought, what was a great study through um, some selected passages in the book of Hebrews uh, for Advent, and, and now we're done with Advent, so we're back, and we're going to take the next three weeks uh, to finish the book of First Thessalonians. So we got through chapter 4, and we're going to start on chapter 5 this morning in Thessalonians. But as we embark uh, on a new year, one of the things that I want to do, and I'm grateful for the text that we're in this morning because it's going to help us with that, is I just want to remind all of us as a church uh, the mission uh, that we believe that God has given us at, at Grace Hill. This is our mission statement at Grace Hill. It's to be a diverse community that follows Jesus, loves people, and is safe to be known. And as you know, if you've been around with us, that last part, safe to be known, has been a, an emphasis of ours that we've been spending some time explaining, hey, why do we have that in our mission statement? And the reason that we have it there is because we're convinced as a church that this is supposed to be a place where when we come and we gather together or when we see each other in community groups or when we are interacting with each other outside of those spaces, that we are encouraged by each other. That when we are together, our faith gets built up. When we're together and we're grieving that people are there to comfort and remind us about the promises of God, that when we're together and we're having a hard time believing in God, that people encourage us in our faith. And we don't believe we can be an encouraging place if this is a place where it's not safe to be known. I think there are a lot of churches, I've experienced some, right, and it's easy for churches to fall into this, where it, this is a place where you might feel more shame being around each other than feel encouragement. Or this might be a place where you feel like there's lots of things going on in my life right now, and the church is the last place that I want people to know about that stuff, because I don't know what people are going to think about me. And so we don't see oftentimes the church is the place that we run to for encouragement and help in the time of need. And our desire as a church is that we would press real hard into this idea that following Jesus is not an individual sport. This is a team sport that we do together. And that is a huge emphasis for us at Grace Hill Church. And as we jump back into 1 Thessalonians together, I hope that we'll see that this is a vision that Paul, as an apostle of Christ, has for the church as well. We are commanded in Scripture, Hebrews 3.13, to encourage each other daily. Daily, okay? And that word encourage literally means to give courage. Give each other courage to follow Jesus. Give each other courage to love people well. Give each other courage to trust in the promises of God, even when things are hard. In the book of 1 Thessalonians alone, this command to encourage one another or a reflection on how this church has encouraged one another happens five times different times in the book, and we're going to have one of those this morning as well 
as we jump into chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. So we'll get there in a minute, but let me just take a couple of minutes to remind all of us what this book, 1 Thessalonians, is uh, all about. All right, so let me just give you a quick recap, quick update. Uh, so we're kind of, we, you know, we're in Advent, so let's get back to 1 Thessalonians. Then we'll read chapter 5 together and uh, see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. 1 Thessalonians, this is a uh, letter written by Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church in Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece, all right, written to that church. Now, I brought my laser pointer. All right, so I'm going to put up uh, a map just so you guys can have an orientation of, of what this book is about and what's going on. So you can read about this in Acts chapter 16, 17, and 18, everything I'm about to say. So if you want to read the history, go to Acts 16 to 18. But Paul is on his second missionary journey where he's traveling throughout the Mediterranean, planting churches, encouraging believers. So in Acts 16, his second journey begins. And it starts here in Antioch, modern-day Syria, okay, right there. Antioch was Paul's home church. That's where he worshipped when he wasn't traveling. Those are the elders that had authority over him. Those are the people he submitted to, his shepherds, people who cared for his soul. That's all in Antioch, all right? So we got Antioch right here. And so Paul begins his journey all the way up to Iconium and Lystra, right there. This is in Turkey. And he meets up with Timothy. They become buddies and start to travel together. Then they make all their, their way all the way up over this area across the Aegean Sea to modern-day Greece. And they come to Philippi. Right? They plant a church up there. This is in Acts 16 um, in Philippi. And where Paul writes the letter Philippians to this church. Problem with Philippi, he got jailed there. It was a hard experience. And he gets run out of town. And so he comes from Philippi and travels down here to Thessalonica right there. All right, it's a little shaky. I'm trying my best. All right, right there. So that's Thessalonica. Paul plants a church there with Timothy and Silas. Okay, but Thessalonica is a rough town. And so they get beaten up and run out of town by the Thessalonians. Uh, and then they go to Berea here. And actually, Berea was a great place, but the Thessalonians followed him to Berea and kick them out of Berea, all right? So they plant a church in Berea, make their way down to Athens right here, okay? You can read about that in Acts 17, um, their time in Athens. Um, that, they had a hard time in Athens, and so what happens is Paul sends Timothy back up to Macedonia, which is this Roman province up here, to check on the believers up there, make sure they're still following Jesus, their church still exists. And then Timothy comes back down and meets Paul in Corinth, right there, all right? And then from Corinth, Timothy gives Paul a report about how the Thessalonians are doing. And then Paul, in response to that report, writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians and sends it back up to the Thessalonians, so he could encourage them. And here's what Thessalonians is all about. Paul is genuinely thankful and surprised that the Thessalonians are thriving, that that church is thriving, because that's a town where there's a ton of persecution, violence. There are people in that church who are being martyred, like literally murdered for their faith, and we'll get to that in a second. 
So it is a hard town to follow Jesus in, but Timothy reports to Paul that they are doing really well as a church. They're thriving. So the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians is Paul just encouraging them. Like, I'm so encouraged that you're following Jesus. I'm so encouraged that you're, you're remaining strong. And then Paul takes the remainder of the letter, chapters 4 and 5, to answer some questions that the Thessalonians had for Paul that Timothy brought back to Paul. So there was probably there was a little bit of relational conflict going on. Paul addresses that in some different things. But one of the primary questions that the Thessalonians had for Paul was what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died, who've either died of, of natural causes, sickness or whatever, or who've been martyred because of the heavy persecution in their town. What happens to them if they die before Jesus comes back? Like, like so they're, they're expecting that Jesus will return one day, and, and when Jesus returns, he's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to judge all the wicked, and they'll live for eternity in the glory of God, and they're a little confused. They're wondering, well, what about the people who've already died? Does that mean that they're going to miss out on God's kingdom because they died before the return of Jesus. And so the end of chapter 4, um, my dad, Monty, he preached on this at our last uh, service in 1 Thessalonians, teaches us that where Paul explains to them, no, absolutely not. Those who have died will be with the Lord in that time when Jesus returns. And we learned about that at the end of chapter 4. And Paul encourages the Thessalonians, he says, listen, when brothers and sisters in Christ die, yes, we mourn, we grieve their death, but we don't mourn as, as if we are people without hope, right? We mourn knowing and having the joy that they are with Christ and they will be with Christ for all of eternity. So Paul encourages them in that at the end of chapter 4, and then we get to chapter 5. And Paul's going to continue to talk about, a little bit about what happens at the end when Christ returns. The question that he answered in chapter 4 was more about what happens and what happens to our brothers and sisters who've died, what happens to them. In chapter 5, Paul is more addressing the question of when. When is this going to happen? When is Christ going to return? And, and how does that impact the way that we live our life? And so as we jump in to chapter 5 together, that's where we're going to pick it up. Paul's going to begin to address this question of when. When will Christ return? All right, so, so I hope that helped oriented you back. Okay, First Thessalonians, this is what it's about. And Paul's going to address this question now. So let's read it together. This morning, we're going to study chapters, or chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We're just going to take this chunk by chunk, try to understand what Paul's saying. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, let's just start there. It says this, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. So, when he's, again, he's, the flow of thought that he is in right now is, when is Christ returning? What is that going to look like? What, what does that mean that Christ is return? That's the flow of thought. So when he says times and seasons, it's referring to the return of Christ. Now concerning the times 
and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that's the day Christ returns, will come like a thief in the night. Now, that phrase, that Christ will return like a thief in the night, is all over Scripture. Jesus says that. Peter repeats that. Paul repeats that a few times. John repeats that in the book of Revelation. That's all over Scripture. And and what we essentially are learning here and what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, hey, as far as when this is going to happen, uh, you don't need me to instruct you in this. You already know. I, I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. One of the things the Bible teaches us is that we don't know the day or hour that Christ is going to return. We can't predict that. If you hear anybody predict that or find some formula to predict it, they're wrong. Okay, because Jesus says he doesn't even know. And I, I, that, my brain can't wrap around that one. But he doesn't even know. So we don't know when Christ is going to return. So it's going to be surprising in a sense. Okay, in a sense when he returns. But, but keep going in the text with me. Verse 3 to 5. It says, now, while people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night Or of the darkness. And so now what Paul is doing here is he's saying, okay, this day is going to come. We don't know when it's going to happen. But when it comes to some people who are in the darkness, it's going to be like a thief in the night. But to those of us who are in Christ and we believe in God's word, well, when that day comes, we're going to know exactly what's happening. It might surprise us when it comes to when it happens. But when it does happen, when we see the Lord Jesus crack the sky, we're going to know exactly what is happening because that's not a surprise to us. See, when a thief comes in the night, if you think about the imagery for a second, right? If you're thinking, imagine, I think we all have, you're in your home, asleep, it's dark, right? It's nighttime and you hear glass break or you hear a thump on the door or you hear something, Right? And what happens, your, your heart begins to pump, right? The adrenaline begins to come, and you begin to wonder, what is happening? I don't know what is happening, but I, I need to figure it out. And basically, Paul is saying, this is what the return of Christ is going to be like for those who do not know Jesus, and they don't believe in his word, and this is not something that they're expecting, that it's going to be like a thief in the night. What is happening right now? Is this dangerous to me? Is it not dangerous to me? Should I be worried? Should I not be worried? I mean, it's going to be just like that experience. But for those of us who are in Christ, it says we're in the day. We're, we're in the light. We have knowledge of what is happening. We have knowledge that that's, that's the Lord Jesus cracking the sky. Like he's, back, he's coming back. It's going to be a day of joy for us. Not a day of dread and of terror and of unexpected. I have no idea what is happening. But that's the difference between those who trust in Jesus and those who don't trust in Jesus. Their experience that day is going to be vastly different. And so what do we do with that? 
Well, Paul gives us an exhortation if we keep going, verses 6 to 10. So Paul says, so then, okay, in light of this reality, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. In other words, let us expect the fact that Jesus one day is going to return. We need to live our lives according to that knowledge. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive or dead, we might live with him. And so the exhortation that Paul gives us here is to live in light of this knowledge that we have that one day Christ is going to return. To live in light of this knowledge that right now we are his. We've been purchased by his blood on the cross. He has promised us eternal life, but we're waiting for him to bring that promise to its fullness at his final return. So we live in light of that. And so the question is, okay, how do we live in light of that? What does that even mean for us? And I think he gives us some specific answers to that in verse 8. If you look at, at verse 8 one more time, he, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, in Isaiah 59, um, uh, the Lord is, is described as wearing this armor and this you know, helmet of righteousness and, and this breastplate, this kind of armor of God. And so Paul loves that. And so he puts that in a lot of his writings. We see different kinds of armor of, of God. And so this is another place where we see this. But if you see the three virtues that Paul lists here, he says, I want you to put on the breastplate of faith and love and then the helmet of hope of your salvation, the hope that we have in salvation. And that triplet, triad of three virtues, right? Faith, love, and hope, we've already seen in First Thessalonians. If you remember the first sermon that we did in this, chapter one, verse three, it won't be on the screen, but I'll read it for you real quick. Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians and explaining to them why he's thankful for them. And he says, I'm remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. And you remember, we went through these. And Paul is basically saying, I'm encouraged by your work of faith. That word work in the Greek literally means proof. The proof of your faith that we see, that's been reported to me by Timothy. The fact that when people watch you live your everyday life, when people watch you interact with people and in your relationships and in your work, there's proof that you believe in Jesus. Like it's evident by the way you live your life. And he says, and Paul commends them for their labor of love. And we went through that and this idea that love, to love one another well, means labor means hard work. I mean, it's not easy to love one another well. It takes hard work. And Paul's saying it's evident that you work hard at loving each other. 
And then he says, and I also see your steadfastness of hope, this reality that, you know, in the light of all the persecution going on around you, you have your hope set on the fact that Christ is coming back for you. And so Paul comes back to these three virtues, right? Faith, love, and hope. And this is the way he says that we live in light of the return of Christ, that we live according to the day and not according to the night. And so this week I was, I was thinking about, okay, how do I explain this well? How, how do we make this more practical for us to understand? And, and I, I want to take us back to Jeremiah chapter 29 for a second. I take us back to Jeremiah 29 all the time. So this is like, you've you've heard this several times before. But the reason that I do it is because I think the the scenario in Jeremiah 29, what is going on, and then the commands that God gives his people in the midst of that, they're just so relevant to our experience today. And I think they're so helpful to us in our experience today. So let me just, quick context. Jeremiah 29, the people of Judah... All right, the southern kingdom were just, just defeated by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and a good amount of those people were taken in exile to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. So you have a huge group of Judeans who are living in Babylon in exile. And Jeremiah is back in Judah, and he's one of the Lord's prophets, and he speaks to the people of God on behalf of God. And so Jeremiah pens a letter to the exiles over in Babylon, all right? So just imagine someone just abducted you and your family and took you to another country, and now you live there, all right? That's the scenario that's happening right now. And then you receive a letter from God's prophet, and that's chapter 29. That's the letter. And I just want you to see, this is what Jeremiah, that that God says through Jeremiah to these people. We're going to read verses 4 to 11 It says, thus says, this is the letter, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the letter. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, let me uh, translate that, for in Babylon's welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And in these instructions that God is giving his people in their midst of exile, this like really difficult time, lots of persecution, obviously, These are the instructions that God gives to them. And I think it matches perfectly this triplet here of faith, love, 
and hope. I think the first thing that God commands the people of Judah as they're in exile is I want you to be people of faith. I want your work of faith to be evident amongst the people of Babylon. So in verse four, when he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Build houses, give your daughters in marriage, give your sons into marriage, expand, have babies, multiply. He's not talking about intermarriage with the Babylonians. He's saying, I want the people of Judah to increase in number in Babylon. I want the people of Judah to be representatives of my kingdom in Babylon. And I want you to live according to my word. And I want my kingdom to have an embassy established in Babylon. That's exactly what God is saying. So I want you to be people of faith. Be people who trust this word. Be people who pray to me. Be people who trust in the ways of God and don't adopt the ways of Babylon. I want representation in Babylon. Be people of faith. And then the second thing he tells them is I want you to be people of love. As you represent my kingdom, I want you to seek the welfare. The Hebrew word there in Jeremiah is shalom. I want you to seek the shalom of the city of Babylon. I want you to pray on behalf of the city of Babylon. Like, these people probably did not want to hear that. Wait, what? Of them? Seek their welfare? And God's saying, yes, seek their welfare because you're representing my kingdom. So I want you to be people who love each other well, but love your neighbors well, too, in Babylon. And then finally, we get this amazing encouragement in verse 11, famous verse for obvious reasons. I want you to have hope. I have promised to return and to get you. I have promised that you're going to go back to the promised land. I have not forsaken you. I have not abandoned you. I am still your God. You are still my people. And so, verse 11, I want you to know that I have plans for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you future and a hope. And so God says, so be people who hold on to that hope that I'm returning for you. As you are people of faith and love in the midst of the city that you live. I think these are perfect instructions on what does it mean to put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Just consider for a second, what would it look like to live in Babylon in the darkness and not in the day? To, to live in Babylon as if there was no knowledge of the promises of God, no knowledge of the fact that he says, I promise to return to get you, no, no knowledge of the fact that, that he has saved them, even though their lived experience right now is really hard, what would it look like? Well, well number one, I think the first thing that it would look like is, man, we need to not stick out in this culture We need not to represent a different kingdom in this culture. We need to blend into this culture. We need to blend into the city of Babylon. Don't stick out. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't let other people notice you because that's going to have great consequences. So no, let's not live according to a different kingdom while we're here. Let's just live according to this kingdom. It's the safest option. A life without faith. I'm not going to trust that God's way are better and God will provide for me in this. I'm going to live just according to the ways of the people around me because that's the safest. 
It's a life without faith in the darkness. And to live without uh, love in the darkness as well. Seek the welfare of these people. Seek the welfare of this kingdom that just abducted me from my homeland. No, I'm not, no my, my life is about like survival. <laughs> like I'm, I, I just want to make sure I make it. And so, yes, I'm reprioritizing some things right now to, to be about me and my needs and my survival and my future. And that leads to the, the hope piece. It's a life without hope, too, because now it's like, no, I'm prioritizing everything in my life around securing my future. Blend in. Make it about me. Prioritize everything around securing my future. And that's what life in the darkness looks like. There's no purpose in that life. It's just don't get noticed. Make sure I'm okay. Secure my future. And isn't that, it's so tempting to live that way, at least here in this culture, right? Blend in. Like there's so many ways that God's ways is counter to the culture around us. And it's hard sometimes when we get pointed out for that. And we don't like the ridicule that comes to us. Okay, blend in. It's safer that way. Okay, I'm going I'm to organize my life around what I need, what I want, my goals and my purposes. Like, how easy is it to not care about what's going on in the houses of the neighbors around you and how your neighbors are doing? How hard is it to say, okay, I'm going to seek the welfare of my next-door neighbor like, what would it look like? My, my next-door neighbor's name is Cherry. What would it look like for me to, to seek her welfare? That's such a reorientation of mindset for us. And then, lastly, I'm not going to organize my life around securing my own future. And I think for many of us, that's the, that's the sermon we're preached at all the time by our culture. Secure your future. You're working for your future, right? Your everything is around. Are you saving enough? Are you prepared? Are you, are you going to be okay later on in life? And so it's kind of like our life's purpose becomes making sure we reach that target and reach that goal. And so I find it interesting in, in 1 Thessalonians 5 how Paul says what happens in the darkness is drunkenness. And I think we can just translate that more as vice. We go after things that the world says is going to soothe our souls, but they actually just drag us deeper into the darkness. Because a life lived in the darkness, a life without faith, a life without love for neighbor, a life without hope is a mundane, purposeless life. And we need to go find things to numb that out. But a life that is lived as a member of God's kingdom according to his ways, a life that is lived in love of neighbor and a life that is lived with the hope that Christ is going to return for me and that his kingdom is real and I have a place in it for all of eternity. That's a life of hope. That's a life of purpose. That's a life of joy. Now, I, I could spend a lot more time breaking those three things down and what it means to live that way, but I actually don't want us to see these verses as the meat of the passage. It's all meat, so I'm not trying to compare verses. But just for us this morning, I want us to see verse 11 as the meat for this morning. And we haven't even read it yet. That's where I want us to go this morning. Look at verse 11 with me real quick. What does Paul say after all of this? He says this. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's, sorry, I just read chapter 4, verse 18, which is so funny because it's the same thing. I meant to read chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Again, like I said, that appears five times in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, normally we might see a verse like this, a sentence like this. It's the end of the paragraph as kind of the less important conclusion of the paragraph. But like I said this morning, I actually want us to see it as the focus. I I want us to see this as the main command, where Paul says, okay, therefore, in light of everything we just walked through, here's what I really want you to do. Encourage each other and build one another up with these things. For 2023 as a church, this is the focus that I want us to have as a church. I, I, I think sometimes when we look at verses like this, passages like this, and we're, we're talking about faith, and we're talking about love and hope, and those are really good things to chew on and to think about. And so we walk away with them and we go, okay, how do I increase my faith? How do I increase my love for my neighbor? How do I increase my hope? How do I live according to these things? And that's such a good question to ask. But here's where I want to push us as a church for 2023, that we wouldn't walk out of those doors asking that question. But we would walk out of those doors asking the question, how do I encourage my brothers and sisters to have more faith? How do I encourage my brothers and sisters to be people of love? How do I encourage my brothers and sisters to have hope that Jesus' promises are real and he's coming back for us? I mean, so many times we're asking the question, how do I get better at this stuff? And now I'm, I'm just saying, let's take that Jeremiah 29 passage where it says, hey, by seeking the welfare of your neighbors, you'll find your own welfare. Well, I think if we're more concerned about helping one another with these things within that we will find the help that we need in those things. How do I encourage my brother and sister to live with faith and to trust that this word is true and it's real and it's worth living your life according to? Listen, I know that some of you had a really hard Christmas. I know that some of you have a lot of uncertainty, sickness in your body right now, and you don't know what that means for you. And that's a recent thing for you. I know it because we've talked. I know some of you have lost fathers and grandparents over Christmas. My own family is dealing with grief. And so there's sometimes where it's really, 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 really difficult to sing a song like Living Hope that we just sang. And we're singing things like, death has lost its grip on me, and yet it feels like death has its grip all around you right now. And you go, it's hard for me to have faith in that right now. It's hard for me to have hope in that right now. And here's the beauty of the church. The church is not a place where you go, okay, hey, leave here and do a better job trusting in that. No, this is a place where we have faith for each other. This is a place where I'm reminded, you know what, it's hard for me to believe that right now, but I've got my brothers and sisters around me, and they believe that. And this thing's a team sport, it's not an individual one. 
And so I don't have to sit here and feel shame because I have a hard time believing that. I can sit here and feel encouraged because I don't need to believe that strongly right now because I know my brothers and sisters got me. What does it look like to help each other live with faith? What does it look like to help each other live with love and encourage each other towards that and to live with hope? This year, as I said, this is a focus I want us to have in 2023. I want us to be less concerned about putting on the armor for ourselves and more concerned about arming each other, equipping each other with faith and love and hope. And so many of you are a part of our community groups. And you know that over the last fall, the focus that we've had as, a group, as groups has been sharing our stories with one another. So if you're not part of our groups, it's one we've been focusing on. We've been sharing our, just our life stories with each other and asking questions. And we have a very specific way that we do that and a very specific way that we respond to each other in that. And I guarantee you that if you've been through that, I know this has been my experience with my group, I've, I've noticed a few things. Number one, I've noticed that I now know a lot more info about people in my group. There's a lot of things I know about now that I did not know before, number one. Number two, I've noticed that attendance is way more high and consistent because people are going, I don't want to miss their story. I don't want to miss what they have to share. I want to be there for them in this. And so it's just been amazing. When we're done with story, I want to share a little bit about where we're going. Many groups, my group included, still has several stories to go. So through the spring, groups will be transitioning from sharing stories to our next season. And in our next season, when you get there, we're going to study the book of Ephesians together. So as a group, we're going to study God's word together. But we're going to do it differently. We're going to dig into the Word of God. We're going to learn what it says. We're going to learn facts and data about it. We're going to understand what God is saying to us. But then we're going to practice flexing a muscle that I think for many of us, and I'm putting myself in this category, is a pretty atrophied muscle. Okay, atrophy means small. Sorry, not a small muscle. And that is literally taking the Word of God that we just studied together and encouraging somebody with it to their face. Literally saying, okay, I've just sat in this group and I've listened to your story and I've prayed for you and I've prayed with you and now we're studying this scripture in Ephesians and there's now something I want to say to you in light of the scripture. I want to I arm you with faith today. When I read this, I thought of you and I want to arm you with faith. Now, like I said, I think this is a muscle that in, in our church context is atrophied. It's small because we don't use it a lot. And I think we need to focus on some hypertrophy, which means get the muscle bigger. And how do you do that? By a lot of reps. You just need a lot of reps and you need a lot of weight to get your muscles to be bigger. And so that's what we're going to practice in groups. What does it look like for me as someone who's heard your story to now study this, understand what the text is saying, and then go, okay, I'm now going to focus on arming you with faith with this and exhorting you towards love with this, and bolstering your hope with this. And it's going to be interesting, but I also think that the Lord is going to use this in amazing ways, because I think this is the weakness of the church in our culture. 
We've been told for so long it's an individual sport, but it's not. And here we refuse to do it as an individual sport. And so that's our focus here at Grace Hill for 2023. We want to be a place where when you come here, you are encouraged, your faith is built up. And you are reminded that we just learned in verse 9 and 10 in chapter 5 that you are not destined for wrath if you are in Christ, but you have the promises of God with you that Christ is going to return and he's going to bring you into his kingdom. And sometimes that's hard to believe. Sometimes it's hard to have faith in that, but you don't have to have faith in that alone. God has not called you to have that faith alone, to have all of that strength in you. He's called us to do that as a community. And so what I want to do, that's, I just want to, I want to end our time right now by praying for our church for 2023. Praying that God would build that kind of community here and within our groups. That God would do the work of making this place in a place of encouragement where we arm each other, we equip each other with faith and with love and with hope. Let me pray for that. Father, we are thankful that we are not alone. We are thankful, God, that you never call us to muster up the strength on our own to follow you. We don't have to muster up the strength on our own to be reconciled back into a relationship with you. God, our entire faith from start to beginning is this message that we don't have to do this alone. The pages of our Bible open with the words, it is not good for man to be alone. And so God, in our sin, you don't leave us in our sin. You send your son Jesus after us to save us, to rescue us to go to the cross on our behalf, to defeat death. But Lord, even in the calling that you have given us as a church to, to take this gospel message, you haven't left us alone. You sent your spirit to help us, to empower us, to encourage us. And Lord, it, it doesn't even stop there. You, you call us to do this as bodies of churches that represent Christ. You call us to do this together. You never call us to go about this mission, to go about this Christian life alone. And then God, we learned that the end of the story is that we will spend eternity not alone but we'll spend eternity at your table. We'll spend eternity feasting upon your goodness with the tears of our eyes wiped away and all of our pain and our hurt healed and all of our sin and mistakes redeemed or all of our questions answered. 
with our soul at rest. Oh, what an amazing hope that is, God. We long for it. So God, help us to be a people who help each other believe it. Help each other live according to it. Help us to be strong for one another when we're weak. Jesus, we praise you that we're never alone. In Christ's name, amen.